0: What's coming up here, I think, on Thursday? Uh yeah. what's that? I don't even know what that is. <laughs> yes, there's Halloween. What else? Does anyone know what else day that is? Considered? Friday. Okay. October thirty first. This is kind of a test. Don't don't feel bad okay. Uh Reformation Day. So 502 years ago, October 31st, Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses on the door uh, on, on the church in Wittenberg, Germany, and that's what's considered the start of what is, what's later called the Protestant Reformation. And um, I bring it up because it's going to tie directly into this. But at that time, Martin Luther, what he was protesting. Was the Roman Catholic Church um, sale of indulgences, which was basically selling, um, you can get out of certain punishment of your sin by purchasing things with your money. And so Martin Luther, he nailed the Zionist Thesis saying, this is not true, this is not right. And in that way, he was um, going against and challenging the authority of the archbishop and the leadership at that time. So, huge deal. In many regards, as I said, as the start of the Protestant Reformation, which would later completely kind of align the doctrine being taught with what biblically um, is in the scriptures. It um, later, I shouldn't say later, it became uh, the foundation of our church in the West today, basically coming from the Reformation. So a huge deal. And it ties directly because everything that Martin Luther John Calvin, Zwingli, and all the other reformers, what they were dealing with at that time is the same thing that Paul was dealing with about 14 centuries beforehand in the churches in Galatia. So if you turn your Bibles to, to Galatians, the letter to Galatians, we'll see that Paul is opposing false teachers just as the reformers did. And now the, the book of ref, the book of Galatians, I'm sorry, it could be argued as the foundation of the, the Reformation and the foundation of Christianity in the sense of it proclaiming the gospel. Uh, Martin Luther he actually described the book of Galatians as dearest to him as his precious wife, and so he was he relied on it very much. And that's because it preaches the gospel. Um, One scholar writes about the book of Galatians that it was a theological refutation of a heresy that, if accepted, would have destroyed the whole church. If the heresy that was being preached by these false teachers that Paul was opposing, he said if that continued, it would have destroyed the church. Because the church would not exist without the gospel. And that's exactly what Paul was preaching and what he was fighting for, and so it's foundational. Um, what we believe affects how we live, and the gospel is the foundation, and we'll see that here in Galatians. And without within that in mind, that's what we'll be covering in the next upcoming weeks is through the book of Galatians, which I'm very excited for because Paul touches on a spectrum of topics within that, but he makes very clear in some very strong language what the gospel is and why it's. Significant for us to also uh, argue for or defend. And so we'll see five points in the passage in the beginning here. Five points. One being the authority of Paul's apostleship. We'll see the true gospel of Christ preached by Paul. He'll expose the false gospels being preached, the false teachers, and then we'll see the effect of what false teaching is doing on the churches in Galatians. And why do we care? Because it affects us the same way. We need to know what our foundation is, what we believe. And we need to know the reality of false teaching, how subtle it can be, and its effects on us. And so before we jump into this, I want uh, just to to lay, lay down or just make clear how significant this is. Because as we'll see, Paul takes it very seriously that this is the most important thing in our lives. In our lives, in our husband's wife's lives, in our children's wives, in our friends' lives, in our extended family lives, our co-workers' lives. The most important thing, literally between life and death, eternally. So it's a massive deal. And and I know I'm repeating, but Paul will make that very clear in the way he says things and the degree to which he says it. So as we jump into this, um, please pray with me. Father, Lord, you are gracious that there even exists this gospel, God, that there's good news for those of us that are sinners, for all of us, Lord, and that we can be saved from our punishment that we deserve and receive so much that we don't deserve, God. Uh, please, Lord, let the freedom of this, and the love of this gospel reign in our lives and just permeate our lives. And God, may we be a shining hope in the community with this gospel. And Lord, help us to hear your word today. Help it to expose uh, different errors in our lives, God. And Father, may your, your word work in each of us. Amen. So a little background and context. So we can better understand what's going on here. So, if you open up, you already have it open. Galatians 1, the first word you see there is Paul. So Paul, the apostle... Paul the Apostle, he's the one writing this. And the people he's writing to, you see here, uh, verse 2, to the churches of Galatia. And you'll see right away that it's not just one church. This is multiple churches he's writing to. And Galatia isn't a town, it's a region. Uh, It was a Roman province. Modern day Turkey is exactly where it was. Uh, The kind of southern and the northern part of Turkey is where this region of Galatia is. And Paul actually, on his first missionary journey throughout the Mediterranean, that was the, when the first place he hit was in this, this region of Galatia. Um, if you keep your, your finger there and go to Acts 13 and 14, that's what where it's actually recorded by Luke about Paul's first time there. And what's interesting to note is that even when Paul was there, there was opposition to his message. There was opposition even when he was there. Uh, Chapter 13, or you can listen in in Acts, verse 45 reads, But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. Verse 50, But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city, stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and drove them out of their district. It keeps on going. Verse 2 of uh, 14, But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. Verse 5, When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them, being Paul and Barnabas, and stoned them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lycaonia, and to the surrounding country, and there they continued to preach the gospel. And finally, verse 19, But Jesus came from Antioch. I'm sorry, but Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul, dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. I'm so sorry. So even when Paul was there, there was opposition to his message right away. They eventually left. And soon after, the false teachers came in. Soon after, which was not a unique event. Years later, when Paul was leaving Ephesus, he talks to the the elders of the church. He says this, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking, twisting things, to draw away the disciples after them. So this was prevalent. These false teachers were happening in many different areas. It was not unique. It was not rare. And just like Paul warned in Ephesus, years earlier in in the churches in Galatia, false teachers came in right after Paul was there. And so Paul, this was kind of his first connection. Um, Honestly, this letter written by, by Paul here is one of his first letters, if not the first letter very soon after his missionary journeys in 49 A.D., which makes Galatians the first letter and foundational. Now, tying this in. Here we go. So as I mentioned, the churches in Galatia was not just one church, but it was many churches, um, such places and cities as Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe. But the very important thing to really tie in that we'll see in in, in the letter of Galatians is that there were Gentile congregations. They weren't Jews. They were like most of us here, Gentiles. We're, most of us are not Jewish. And so that's who Paul is talking to. And the reason why that's important to know is that connects exactly with Paul's purpose here. Before we get into the into chapter one, but Paul's purpose, as I've been kind of saying, he's he's writing to oppose false teaching that was distorting the gospel. And Paul took this very seriously. Keep it in mind here, so this is really early, 49 AD, that Christianity was very Jewish. It was a, like a, a Jewish flavor, if you will. It was seen as Jewish. In fact, Christianity at that time was getting a pass from the Roman government because it was seen as a Jewish sect. At that time, they weren't getting persecuted by the Roman government. They were for sure getting persecuted by the Jews, but the Roman government, the persecution for them would come later. Because they were seen as very Jewish, that they were seen as a, just a sect of Judaism. That's how it was. There was this. It was Jesus' first disciples, all Jews. Jesus preached in Israel, all Jews. And only now are they starting to understand the full gospel that the Gentiles, most of us here, are able and are included in the new covenant. And so this was very Jewish. And why I bring that up here is because the false teachers they thought you had to first become a jew before you could become a christian jews at that time following god came with such a strong identity tied to the mosaic law tied to ethnicity even tied to keeping the sabbath tied to circumcision all these things were huge it was very hard for them to let go of that as if that is not what's needed in order to become a christian and so they were the false teaching they were saying is you first had to follow the law, and most most notably, you need to be circumcised in order to become a Christian. And so these these false teachers they were called Judaizers. They're looking to Judaize if that's even a word, people, because they were teaching that you have to become a Jew before you can become a Christian. And this absolutely enraged Paul, because they were added to the gospel. We see this even in Acts 15.1. It's written, But some men came down from Judea and were treating the brothers, teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And so they were saying, you have to do this in order to first become Christian. And so with that all being said, boiling down, the purpose of the letter of Galatians. What Paul saw as the problem is that they were adding to the gospel. They were distorting the gospel and it was huge to Paul because the gospel, this is the only way that we are saved. This is the only way. And he was furious. And we'll definitely see that here. And so they're opposing this foundational truth of the gospel and one way, and we'll see the start here, and I know it's kind of a long introduction, but we'll get there. One way... That the false teachers were doing this is that they undermined Paul's authority as an apostle, because if you undermine the messenger, you can undermine the message. And so they attacked Paul. Uh, he's not like he's not one of the, the twelve apostles. He's not that big of a deal. And they're trying to undermine the gospel. And so we'll see here that Paul had to defend his apo- his apostleship, his authority, in order so he could defend the gospel. So he writes this to bring light to false teaching. To expose the false gospels, to defend the gospel, and he has to, in that time, to defend his authority as an apostle as well. All right? It's a huge introduction, but jump in this. So read with me here, Galatians chapter 1. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead and all the brothers who are with me, to the churches of Galatia, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave Himself up for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, and according to the will of our God and Father, to Him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting Him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. So the first thing we see here, Paul defends his apostleship. That's the first point we'll see, and the whole reason why he's doing it is because he's defending the validity and the authority of his message, the gospel. How many of us write letters anymore, like physical letters? Does anyone still write them? I know we all appreciate them when we get them. Um, who writes emails? Yeah, yeah, we do. yeah. Uh, we all. There's kind of like a, a customary introduction, right? Like. Most likely, dear so-and-so, dear most beloved Casey, or whatever. And then most likely right after that comes some kind of reading like, I hope you've been doing well, or how are things been, or something like that, right? In the same way, we'll see here in the letters at the time, there was a customary way to open them up. You see, unlike us, the first word is usually, who's the one writing? Paul. So you know exactly who to yell at later. But no. Since so it's the first person, who you're writing. Then usually there's some kind of greeting. And then usually you see who are the recipients. As we kind of see exactly the light out here. And so Paul says right away, hey, it's Paul. And what's interesting to note, interesting to note, is that in this introduction, Paul cannot wait to get to his points in this letter. And it just bleeds into this introduction. His points that he wants to hit because they're so important, they bleed into the introduction here. And we'll see that. in the next word you see here, Paul, an apostle, an apostle, and just found there, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. And like I said, the false teachers were trying to undermine Paul's gospel by undermining Paul's authority as an apostle. And so he'll get that. We'll actually see that next week. He really hammers out his apostleship. But it bleeds through here that the next thing he says is an apostle, his authority. He's not some big-headed guy that, I'm I'm an apostle. No, he's saying it because he has to secure his authority in order to secure the validity of the gospel. And so that's why he really hammers this here, that he is an apostle. And so what is an apostle? If you can just humor me here as we talk about this really quick. So what is an apostle? An apostle. We see in the gospel that there's two types of apostles. One, the apostles of Christ, and two, the apostles of the church. You know, the apostles of Christ is the specific is the specific use, the 12, right? And, you know, like, there's the list. Um, and, like, in Mark chapter 3, it's listed out. Uh, Simon Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, John, his brother, um, Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, the son of Elpheus. <coughs> Sorry. Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and then Judas Iscariot, who was later replaced with Matthias. These are the apostles of Christ. I'm sorry, I've been sick all week. You even get sick of me coughing. These are the apostles of Christ. <coughs> they were unique, it's a, a limited and closed group. We see in Ephesians that they laid the foundation of the church. In Acts chapter two, we see that the disciples devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They were authoritative because they were sent out by Christ. The second group of apostles we see is a general sense: apostles, messengers, emissaries, envoys of the church. It's, it kind of just like missionaries almost. A, a general sense of the word apostles. Um, they were not a limited group. You could even call it, uh, could if you're using that word, call missionaries today as apostles because they were sent out. Two completely different. One was specific, one was a general sense of the word. So Paul is saying here that he is an apostle of Christ. He's defending that. He's authoritative. And we'll see that here that not from men nor through man, he was not appointed by man, he was not even self-appointed, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father. He's defending his authority as an apostle. I am one of the twelve. And most likely the, the false teachers were saying, he's not like the twelve. He's a nobody. Uh, he's not very important. But he's defending himself. No, I am important. It's through God that I was appointed. And we'll get to that more next week as Paul really goes into this and hammers this. And then he says here at the end, Father, who raised him from the dead. Maybe a dual purpose here. Paul, number one, There is no power to the gospel unless Christ is raised. And number two, maybe Paul alluding to when he was appointed, when he was saved, when he encountered the risen Christ on the road to Damascus. Again, securing his authority as as an apostle, not because he's big-headed, but because he needed to secure that in order to secure the validity of the gospel. So he's really pushing that. Uh, And I I said again, not because he's big-headed, not that he's abused or anything like that, Because in order to secure the validity of the gospel He needed to secure his apostleship This was the same case a little bit in in Corinthian church In 2 Corinthians you'll see him defend his apostleship Because there's people who are attacking that Which means they're attacking his message as well But he goes in there and he says Verse 3 And all the brothers who are with me And this almost again ties to his apostleship I'm not the only one teaching this I'm not some lone ranger who's teaching this false gospel But there's brothers with me that you guys know They're with me, probably Barnabas, maybe Silas. There's people with me. I'm not some guy making this up. I I think of uh, undermining the messenger, or undermining the message by undermining the messenger. And I think about that in in terms of today. Uh, Undermining uh, biblical teachers, but undermining their character. Like, oh, they're, they're discriminatory because they're saying there's only one way. There's only one way through Christ. Or they're unloving because they're calling out people for uh, premarital sex or for homosexuality or for all these different things. And they're trying to undermine the message by undermining the messengers. And I think even further for us, does our life and how we say things and share with our friends does that undermine the gospel and the message we share? I think of my older sister Amanda. She she lives in Denver. She's uh, outspoken as not Christian, denies the faith. Uh, I talk to her frequently, Facetime her all the time, uh, which is a lot of fun. She's really fun to talk with. But I, I constantly kind of reflect: is how I'm saying things or what I'm saying? Because we talk about my parents and stuff or whatever. Um, is what I'm saying is that ever undermining? The gospel that I'm sharing with you. Is how I how I act, is that ever undermining the message? And we can think about like our our friends, even our kids, our friends at school, friends at work, is how we are acting, is it ever undermining the message that we're trying to share with them? Because Paul was in a way dealing with that as well. Not necessarily how he was acting, but his apostleship was tied to how he was acting. And so Paul defends his apostrophe here. It bleeds into his introduction to the, to the churches of Galatia and again, multiple churches. This was not rare. This was happening everywhere. I am not a very detail-orientated person. I was thinking about this this week. Um, if I come home and Casey, which she has been doing a little bit recently, switches up a picture on the wall moves it, maybe even paints a wall, cuts her hair for all I know. <laughs> if I recognize it, I'm pretty proud of myself because I'm not very detailed. You, do you agree with that honey? Yes. Now those things that have been on on the wall for two weeks, three weeks, haven't moved, it's like it's not. I don't even notice it. it, it's just whatever. I've tried before, this is interesting though, like writing a reminder for myself and posting it, two days, don't even see it anymore. So it's like, what's the point of this? And so, in case you could probably attest to that, I put reminders and rip them down to they're meaningless to me because I just forget them. But anyway, so these reminders, it's very easy to overlook things that we're exposed to a lot. These intros in Paul's letters and the other letters can be very similar. The verse 3 Grace to you and peace from God our Father. Very typical to Paul's letters. Very typical. That's actually probably word for word for what he says in a lot of his letters. Grace to you and peace from God our Father the Lord Jesus Christ. And he probably adds some other things on there. But don't overlook that. Because we see here, our salvation is tied it's beautifully pictured in these two words. Simplicitly is by grace from God alone and as a result we have peace. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. And just like this intro, I was thinking, just like the intro, we can easily overlook the gospel when we're hearing it all the time. The good news could become old news. We're hearing it a lot and we just kind of suddenly forget the absoluteness. That we are absolutely sinful. That we are absolutely forgiven and absolutely from God alone. And by grace alone. It can be very easy to just overlook it. And so look in here. Don't overlook this. And we'll see in the rest of these verses here, verse 3 through 5, Paul preaches the gospel. Follow with me here. So verse 4, or verse uh, verse 3, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins. Gave himself. Uh, I love Isaiah 53 where it prophetically talks about Jesus as the suffering servant. And Isaiah 53, um, Isaiah writes by God, says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This picture that we are sheep going astray, going after the next, the better grass, the green grass on the other side, the, the more pleasure, more power, uh, more popularity. We're looking, we're, we're just straying off. And then Jesus later in his parable, the good shepherd, I am the good shepherd. And the shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He gives himself. John 3:16, 16, God's the little word that he gave. Name any other God that has ever gave himself for his creation. We put sacrifice on himself for, for these creatures of his. the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins. Back to Isaiah 53. And I like it because it gives us such a picture of what's going on here with Jesus. He says, uh, Isaiah says, But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. Because he poured out his soul to death... and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. He gave himself for our sins. Didn't have to. He was very justified just to let us die in our sins. But he gave himself for us, the gospel. Verse 1, I'm trying to... Show how the gospel is said here in the introduction where Paul bleeds it in. He already talked about the resurrection, who was raised, who, who raised him from the dead. He talks about the resurrection, verse one. And look here, he says, to deliver us. So continuing in verse four, who gave himself for our sins, to deliver us from the present evil age. And that word too, it's a, it's a purpose word. You're saying, okay, here's a purpose. The next thing that's found is, uh, is purpose. And so one of the purposes of our salvation, the reason why we've been saved, one of the reasons that we've been saved is so that we're delivered from this present evil age. And this word deliver, it's a rescue word. Uh, Stephen in Acts, the first martyr, he used that word to describe God talking to Moses, saying that he was going to deliver the Jews or the Israelites from Egypt. It was a rescue word. So Paul says, one of the reasons that we are saved, one of the purposes of the gospel is that we're delivered from what? The present evil age, and that's exactly what it sounds like. The present, the current, evil age, kind of the, the world, the culture we are living in is evil now. And one of the reasons we're saved is that we're delivered from it, not taken out of it, but that we're free from it and living as a slave of Christ rather than a slave to sin and a slave to the world. We're delivered from it. Were rescued from it. And he says, according to the will of God our Father, it's God's will that no one would perish. And then he ends here. To him be the glory forever, and ever. I had, a, I remember playing football in high school. There was a guy one time. I remember, I don't know if this was in the locker room or what, but he was ticked because he was literally using like he was saying. He he just wants all the glory. He was mad. I don't know what it was about. He just wants all the glory to himself, all the praise from the crowds when he scores a touchdown, or whatever the argument was. I just remember him using that word and kept on saying that. He just wants all the glory and he was upset. This praise for what you've done, this 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 glory. And that's exactly what Paul is saying here is that our salvation, the salvation of sinners, is for God's glory, the praise of his goodness, the praise of his love. It's not about me. It's not about you. It's about God. It's about His glory. So, Paul defends here the gospel. He defends his apostleship that bleeds into this introduction, he defends the true gospel, which bleeds into this introduction. We see that Jesus died for our sins, verse one and four. He was raised from the dead by God the Father, verse one. It was by grace, verse three. As a result, we have peace with God, verse three. It was all from God, verse three. And the purpose was to deliver us from the present evil age, to make us more like Christ, verse four, and is for God's glory and praise, verse five. He he preaches the gospel. It bleeds into his introduction. His defense of the his apostleship, in order to defend the validity of the gospel, bleeds into his introduction. Now he moves on. He gets the issue at hand. The false gospel that is permeating the churches in Galatia. And look at the word he uses. Verse (coughs) 6. I am astonished. If you look at other letters of Paul, if you can look at them, after the introduction what usually almost always comes next is some form of I give thanks for every time I, I hear of you, I think of you. Uh, I never cease to pray for you because of the faith I hear that's proclaimed in all the world. He gives some kind of commendation. Grace, and peace from God our Father, um, to the churches, and blah, 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 from blah, blah, blah. Then he says, I give thanks for you. In all of his letters except for one, and this is here in the letter of Galatians. This is the only letter of Paul that does not have a commendation for the believers. Little Rock, huh? Not once does he commend them. Not once. All the other letters, even the Church of Corinth, which was sick, even in the the culture's eyes, they saw the church as this is embarrassing. Paul even commended them, but here in the Church of Galatians of Galatia, no commendation. In fact, what should have said, or typically is, I give thanks for this. He says, I am astonished. I am surprised. I am flabbergasted. If you like that word, can you imagine? Or, or, or think of a Christian in your life that you look up to. Someone you respect, maybe a mentor, maybe the one that led you to Christ, someone that you hold in high esteem. And one day they came up to you and said, Alex, Ryan, Aaron, AJ, Sarah, all of us, I know I named some of us, <laughs> I am surprised how fast you have left Christ. I am amazed how quickly you have went off the rails. Can you imagine that? This is exactly what's happening here. I'm astonished, says Paul. How quickly, he says, how quickly you are, you are quickly discerning him. They're quickly leaving him who has called them to uh, call you in the grace of Christ. Uh, this picture here, the, this word astonished. I'm oh, sorry. Quickly. So he doesn't just say that you're discerning him, but so quickly. I was just there, he says. I was just there. And you are so quickly leaving the gospel of Christ. Um, This picture here is the Israelites in the golden calf. They have so quickly left him. They just saw, literally just saw, God set down a pillar of fire to protect him from an army, split The Red Sea saw God bring the water back and destroy the army of the leading superpower at that time, the Egyptians. Destroyed them. They literally just saw that Moses is gone for a couple days on the mountain with God, and they so quickly decided to get all their earrings and jewelry and build it to a golden calf and worship it as if it is God, if it is the God. They so quickly. Turned from God when they saw some incredible stuff. And exactly the picture here. I'm astonished that you so quickly deserted him. How quickly do we desert God? I was thinking in terms of uh, opportunities to share the gospel. How quickly do I, do you, when an opportunity arises, maybe with coworkers, with friends at school... Perfect opportunity, maybe not even perfect, but imperfect opportunity to, to share the hope that's within us, the truth. And we just kind of let it pass. How quickly do we desert Christ in that in that situation? So he says, who called you? Uh, deserted him who called you to the grace of Christ. Um, again, extolling the, the, the gospel. That we didn't deserve it. We were chosen. We were called. It was all from him. All by him. And he said... And then verse 6, and are turning to a different gospel. How could you be turning to a different gospel? And right away, Paul says, verse 7, not that there is another gospel. Not that there is another gospel. There is no other gospel. There is no other good news. There is no other way. There is nothing. The only way is through Christ, by grace, through faith, in Christ alone. He says that is the only way, and that's why he's so upset Because if you're distorting that, you're distorting the only way we can be saved is the gospel. And that's why he gives them no commendation because this is serious. You are literally damning those who are listening to it because they're hearing a distorted gospel and you are troubling as we see the Christians who are listening to this. This is of huge significance. This is the only way and you're distorting it and turning it into a different gospel that does no good but only harm. So he was incredibly upset as you and I would be as well. He says, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel. And and there's some obvious people like this, right? The Mormons, the Muslims, the Jehovah Witnesses, and on and on. Very blatant, not not the gospel. And then there's those who are a lot more subtle, who are in our camp, who may be subtly distorting the gospel. (coughs) Excuse me. Whether they be just adding a little bit more to grace, or or you can just do whatever you want, like or adding some kind of do what you wish, as if it's free grace, which we'll get to a lot more. That Paul really nails this later in the in the, um, in the end of the letter. But he says distort. Um, the illustration here is taking something from what it is to the exact opposite. It's used. To think, or in a quote, Peter quotes it uh, in Acts, quoting Joel, using the word from taking the sun and turning it to be to darkness, from its character to the exact opposite. So Paul's saying, just adding a little bit, you completely change it. It's no longer powerful. It's the complete opposite of its character. Distorting the gospel just a little bit, it's worthless. It's powerless. It cannot save. It's been distorted. And the part that I kind of, kind of hit me is that they. Verse 7, um, not that there's another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort this kind of evil intent. They want to. It isn't by mistake. They want to. And just who would want to do that? What kind of sick person would want to do that? And I'm just thinking of the enemy of our soul, Satan, wants to. He wants to distort the gospel. So Paul defends his apostleship. Defends, and therefore defends the validity of the gospel. He shares the gospel. He talks about this false gospel here, that there's no other gospel. There's no other gospel. And then he targets the false teachers. Verse 8. The what Paul would say the distorters and the troublers. Verse 8. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. Look at this. Look at this statement. Even if we... Paul says, even if I preach later, I send you another letter and it has in any way distorted the gospel I preached before, get rid of it. Don't even listen to it. Even if he does, he says, don't even listen. Then he goes even further and says, even even if an angel from heaven, even if you have this tremendous spiritual experience that even slightly distorts the gospel, have nothing to do with it. Have nothing to do with it because it is not the gospel. There's no other gospel, he says. Even if there's this experience, even if I do, nothing to do with it because there's no other gospel. It does not matter who it's coming from. It is not another gospel. There's nothing um, to be added to it. doesn't matter who it's from. There is no, no other gospel. And I, I was thinking, um, what if we are listening to or reading one of our favorite Christian authors or uh, favorite Christian preachers, whoever it may be. And if we kind of hear a little thing that's off, will we have that same urgency like Paul, like, okay, that's enough of that? Or maybe even call like, that's, that's not right. You're distorting the gospel because Paul was very urgent and he didn't care what people thought. This is wrong. Do we have that humility? Like, okay, so I love so-and-so and he just kind of went off there on the deep end. Okay, or even if someone, one of us, um, talks to another person like, hey, I heard, I know you really like so-and-so. Um, I heard him say this, it's a little concerning, Um I'll maybe just listen a little more critically, or would we listen to that warning, or would we get upset and maybe defend and get angry at this person? <coughs> I'm just going to bring up a real-life example of, do we have that urgency to protect the clear gospel, and any distortion is thrown away with right away like Paul does? The gospel to the one contrary to the one we preach to you. The one he preaches in the introduction here. I keep on saying here the Paul's tone or Paul's strong words and that's what comes to the end here. Those false teachers the ones that distort the gospel he says let them be accursed or really what he's saying let them be damned to hell is what he says. Let them be damned he says. And I know it's very strong because he's, he's making a point here. If they're teaching a gospel that's distorted, they're literally damning the people you listen to or who's listening to them. Then you're troubling the, the believers from listening. He says, Let them be damned. It's very strong. And we'll see later, he's very strong. And this is a huge, very significant, and that's why he's using this language. Then you see verse 9, he used it that says the same exact thing. Verse 9, as we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to a gospel contrary to the one you've seen, let them be accursed. Let him be accursed. There is no other gospel, he says. And those that preach a distorted gospel, let them be accursed. So he defends his apostleship in order to defend the validity of the gospel. He preaches the gospel. He calls it the false gospels. He points to the false teachers. And then the last point here, the effect (coughs) of the false teaching. Go back to verse 7. There are some who trouble you, is the word he uses. There are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. False teaching has an effect, and that's why it's so serious. This word, and I think you'll like this, this word trouble was used at that time to refer to people in this Greco-Roman world that were political agitators. Political agitators. I just thought, well, talking politics is a pretty divisive Very agitating thing. Depending on you talk about, if you say "Make America Great Again" or "Win with Warren" or whatever the slogans are, just saying that can cause quite a stir. Can cause a lot of anger, a lot of tension. And that was the word that Paul uses: this false teaching troubles. Just like this political tension, this political divisiveness, all this tension. That's exactly how false teaching does to the believer. It troubles. It's actually, the word is also used twice by Jesus in John chapter 14. Um, if you remember, John 14, this is before that he's betrayed. He's literally telling his disciples, hey, I'm going to betray betrayed, I'm going to die. I'm going to go somewhere where you can't go. He says, Peter, yep, you're, you're a leader. He's going to deny me. So you're, you're the disciples listening to this. You're like, what is going on? And he said that Jesus says twice, don't let your heart be troubled. And they're like, are you kidding me? You're literally leaving us. You're saying you're going to die. Our leader, fearless leader, he's going to deny you. And so they're troubled. And so that anxiety, just of the anxiety and the stress, Jesus says, do not be troubled. And that's the exact word that Paul uses here. False teaching troubles. It troubles. It troubles. It makes us sit in guilt and shame when we fail rather than realizing the gospel that Jesus has taken care of him, To be empowered by it. That Jesus has taken the shame on him. Has taken the guilt on him. It troubles. It makes us think that we have to do things in order to earn God's acceptance, His grace. It makes us feel that we need to keep these things up. Otherwise, God isn't pleased with us, that He doesn't care about us, and that He won't bless us. We have to earn this. We have to earn this. It troubles us. It gives us in a state of tension and stress and anxiety. When true teach, the true gospel frees us, which Paul, is a huge theme here in Galatians, is that we're free. The gospel frees us. False teaching troubles believers. It damns those who are listening because it's no way to salvation. There's no other gospel, Paul's saying. There's no other gospel. Nineteen centuries ago <coughs> from today, Paul dealt with this. These false teachers were destroying the gospel. About five centuries ago, Martin Luther reformers were dealing with the same thing. With the Roman Catholic Church and their their distortion of the gospel, it sounded so good, but it was distorted. It was distorted. And today we face the same thing. Jesus says all the time, "There'll be watch out for the wolves. There'll be false teaching. There'll be those come in my name." He says all the time. In fact, if you look at all the New Testament letters, all of them have some hint that they're attacking some kind of false teaching. All of them. this was not. Just, it was in the, in the beginning, the first century church. It was during the high, really, people say, the high point of the Reformation, it is today, the false teaching. We face those that distort the gospel. And so the Apostle Paul, he opposed the false teaching. He defended his apostleship in order to defend the validity of the gospel. He calls out the false gospels, the false teachers. Why? Because people's souls are at stake, literally. People's souls are at stake, and he was like, This is no joke. He gives no thanks, and he goes at them. How could you? I am astonished, he says. So, what does this mean for you and me? It might mean for some of us to trust Christ the first time, to acknowledge our sin, to see this beautiful gospel, this good news that Paul teaches here, that we can be saved from our sin. That we can have righteousness, being right with God, and there's nothing we could do to earn it. That we can be free from punishment, and we can be made right with God through Christ alone. That might be for some of us. For others, it might mean that we have to fight the lies of sin far more in our minds that get brought up against the gospel. Are you sure you're a good a mother, a good father, even a good kid? Are you sure you're you sure your parents wouldn't love you more if you did this? You're like Johnny more down in school? Do we fight the lies that Christ has paid at all? It might mean lovingly disassociating, disassociating ourselves with certain preachers, teachers, whatever, whether close or, or far, because they are preaching a different gospel. It might mean bring our lives more in line with what Jesus teaches so that our lives don't undermine the message that we're teaching. And finally, it might mean to be more intentional at seizing these opportunities that God gives us at work, at school, in our families even, with our kids, to share the gospel. So whatever it means, let this truth that Paul rings out, and what the Reformers risked their lives to let ring out, and what believers throughout history, and even today, what they are persecuted for, that there's no other gospel than the one through Jesus Christ. Father, thank you, Lord, for this. Um, I think about my life before Christ. Uh, I think of the things I even do now, Lord. And God, thank you for forgiving us. Thank you for this good news, the gospel. And God, help us to, to live this life that supports the gospel, That not perfect, but we, we are constantly uh, repenting, Lord. That we're constantly asking forgiveness, working, striving to live lives worthy of the gospel. Give us a resolve like Paul to hold fast to the gospel, this urgency Paul had to expose these false gospels, these false teachings, that lead people astray and troubled believers. And may we live in the joy and the freedom and the love in the gospel this week as we get after our jobs, as the frustrations of life arise, and as we are with our families. Amen.